Good morning. Thanks for inviting me. Um, so, um, uh, I should begin in the name of God. I've uh, really taken the title of the symposium as my, as my title because of the question mark which immediately uh, started all kinds of meanings going. Um, so the title is Unified Vision, Unified World, question mark. The Invitation to God and Vision. Gathered here under the name of Ibn Arabi, as we are, we're gathered under the meaning he represents of the unity of existence. The vision of which is the unified vision of the symposium title. Implicit in the title of this symposium is a question, something like, since we know that there is one reality, why does the world appear disunified? The images that come to mind are of conflicts and killing, exploitation and rebellion, wars of belief and self-interest. Within ourselves and in our relationships, there are similar disunities. This is a problem with which we are faced. Is it that we are invited to see a vision of unity in diversity, despite this state of affairs? Or is it that a unified vision can make a difference? I think it is both. I think it's both for practical reasons and for deep reasons. I think we can see around us this truth of a unified vision arising. And where we see it, we can observe an effect. Since there is one reality, and it is immediately present in all places, this meaning of the possibility of a unified vision is... Uh, potentially arising in all places and times, obviously according to the form it takes from the particular place. In this talk, this vision will be represented to us through diverse voices in acknowledgement of this. As an example, here is what Albert Einstein wrote in response to a rabbi who wrote to him in great need. This rabbi had a 16-year-old daughter who had died and uh, he was faced with the task of trying to comfort his 19-year-old daughter and felt unable to do it and wrote to Einstein and Einstein wrote back. A human being is a part of the whole called by us universe, a part limited in space and time. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening the circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole nature in its beauty.
we don't know the outcome of this for the rabbi and his daughter, but we do know that this passage has become an inspiration for many. It was brought to my attention by a therapy client with a progressively disabling and life-shortening illness. Uh, She's given me permission to mention this uh, anonymously. Uh, It leapt out at her because it reminded her of several occasions when she was a child, when she herself experienced a vision of universality. She'd forgotten these experiences until she read this passage. But now when she remembers them, her vision of herself and her suffering changes subtly but significantly. Of course, her illness has not gone away, nor have the constantly changing challenges of everyday life in coping with it and the relentless deterioration she's experiencing. But remembering this perspective places herself and her particular experience in the context of the whole, with all sufferings and all beauty. Much of the time she's caught up in the often difficult details of everyday life and the relentless changes which she's having to adapt to. But if she remembers the universal perspective, her difficulties seem insignificant. And she also says that she knows that everything changes. And she's known this ever since she was a child and had these experiences. Despite neither offering comfort nor changing anything about the individual situation, this change of perspective can have a remarkable effect. And we see this in practice and uh, uh, We might expect that for other reasons. Surely this is an extraordinary thing, that nothing material changes, and yet the situation can be transformed by perspective, by the nature of the vision. This woman has also been practicing mindfulness meditation, which is increasingly offered in healthcare settings around the world, thanks to the work of John Kabat-Zinn at UMass, and some of you may have heard of him. Um, The core of this practice, uh, the core of this is to practice the awareness of things as they are, or or as uh, Shunryu Suzuki, the Soto Zen master, put it, things as it is, neatly encapsulating the many in the one. neither judging nor rejecting nor becoming attached to particular things, but practicing a point of vision which observes all equally. In this way, the practice is a truly compassionate one, in accordance with God's name, the compassionate Rahman, since it is according to the action of compassion that all things which were in a state of non-existence are brought into existence. In the same way, practicing awareness of things as they are is a practice of widening the circle of compassion in consciousness. And the result, potentially, is of a compassionate, unifying vision of all the manifold aspects of self and others. In reality, of course, the circle of compassion is already universal. And the only widening possible is in consciousness. In the Fasusal Hikam, in the chapter of the Prophet Hood, 
Ibn Arabi says, I quote, For the creation, there is no Bishara, good tidings, greater than this, that Hood, with the word of truth, announced that truth, God, is the ipseity, selfhood, of all things. End quote. He mentions Hood because it was Hood in the company of all the prophets and envoys who quoted the following verse to him, the Quranic revelation. There is no creature whom he does not hold by his forehead because indeed my Lord is on the straight path. End of quote. This conversation between Ibn Arabi and Hood occurred in the Hadra of the reality of Muhammad in a vision he was shown when he was made to be present in that place of vision, in Cordoba in the year 586, 1190 of the Common Era. Ismail Hakibursavi, in his commentary on the Fasus, explains that the reason why it was Hood out of all the prophets and envoys who spoke is that the ways and tastes of Hood were the most suitable in the ways of Tawheed, unity in plurality. And this meaning also seems very suitable to the current time and this symposium. The reality of Muhammad is that place of unified vision. And the good tidings of what Hood said to Ibn Arabi in that place are the good tidings that indeed all the things of the world are unified in their reality, which is one reality. As Ibn Arabi explains in the same chapter, when it comes to man, there are degrees of consciousness of reality. He explains that, uh, open quotes, it is only at the station of man that there is otherness between what is imagined as creature and what is known as God. End quotes. He goes on to explain that God says, this is in quotes, I am in manifestation, I am that which is manifested. End of quotes. And Ibn Arabi continues, but when it comes to man, he does not say that, he keeps it secret. Only mankind has to discover it for themselves. End of quotes. And, more quotes, everything is him and knows it, except for those who are in his image, who don't. So God keeps the truth secret from humankind because otherwise his mystery would not have been known and consequently it would not have been possible for him to come to be known in the way that it is possible through man. And to paraphrase what Ibn Arabi goes on to say, because of this ignorance, individual humans are on a continuum between ignorance and knowledge of the truth. There are, therefore, different degrees of consciousness of reality and different kinds, categories and eras of people. And each kind and category of people has a spiritual leader appropriate to their particular nature who's like a link between them and God, who comes with a particular message and law uh, according to what is needed by those people. Some of the most obvious examples are, of course, Moses, Jesus, Muhammad, and Gautama Buddha. 
So, at the level of human beings, starting out from a position of relative ignorance, there are some who follow one way and some who follow another. And this is the situation we have in the world today. And of course, there are some who deny these and follow lesser and partial ways. For example, certain aspects of human nature to the exclusion of others. Such as, for example, appetites and desires, tribe, power, reason, and any of these qualities which continue to be worshipped implicitly in much the same way as they have at times been worshipped as personified deities. It is of the nature of this situation that there will be difference and disagreement. And uh, I agree with Pilar that that's absolutely fine. However, this can become pernicious when, on the basis of their own particular form of belief, humans may make the further assumption that their notion is the true nature of reality and the only universal law, when, in fact, it is what they personally have been shown and that, in turn, is according to their own particular nature and needs. Then, where there is disagreement, this easily leads to conflict. And where this is between groups, even to war. Bob Dylan captured the essence of this error in this, in, of the error in this very succinctly uh, when he said, and I quote from the. Uh, 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 recent um, album that came out. So this was in a live performance. I don't mind the Ten Commandments. I believe in the Ten Commandments. The first one, I am the Lord thy God, is a great commandment if it's not said by the wrong people. <laughs> I, think he's, I think he's slightly misquoted it there himself. But... <laughs> It's interesting to note just how precisely Dylan has formulated this, exactly observing that a person taking this sort of view is, in fact, deifying themselves. On the same subject, Ibn Arabi says the following. The people who are veiled, who go through one form of dogma, what they see as God is their own nafs, self, and there is no difference between idols and such brought-about gods. End quote. Although Ibn Arabi goes on to point out that, in quotes, in the end, even that is also he. Close quotes. So, nevertheless, at the level of the collectivity of all the facets of existence, in the reality of Muhammad, the meeting of all the prophets and envoys and the statement of Hood in that gathering testifies to the gathering of all these categories within one unified place of vision. According to the Quranic saying which Hood quoted. And Ibn Arabi comments and says the following, open quotes, this he mentioned to prove to me by bringing in the testimony of the Quran that God, Huck, truth, is the same as all the creatures of the world. He did not categorize nor differentiate one thing from the other and specially did not demonstrate other 
than the fact that God, through the huia, ipseity of the plurality of his uniqueness, holds by the forehead all the individuations of the indefinite number of possibilities, and that each of the indefinite number of possibilities goes on the way towards his private Lord. Making that which is of God, individuated in themselves, their Lord, Rab, in the world of truth. And that God, truth, indeed is the beginning and the end, and the Zahir and the Batin, and the manifested and the secret. The good news is not just that each goes on the way to his private Lord, it is also both that that private Lord is indeed a face of the one reality, and that this is the case for all things, all people. Hence the saying of Jesus when asked which was the greatest commandment in the law. He said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Although in a certain way the first commandment contains all, and that is why it's called the great commandment, it is a necessity for there to be not just one, but two commandments. Hence, why the, all the law and the prophets hang on these two, according to Jesus. Firstly, metaphysically, because the reality is both transcendent, beyond existence, beyond existence and manifest in it. So the first commandment is according to love for God as Lord, and the second is according to love for God as he appears in relative manifestation, individuated in our neighbour. It would hardly be possible to square these two commandments with each other uh, if they are not understood like this, um, since it's clearly not possible to love God with all oneself and also to love oneself and one's neighbour at the same time, unless this is seen from a unified perspective in which it is he who appears in all these forms. Secondly, at the level of the individual or group, the first commandment could be understood to refer to the private Lord to the exclusion of others. This is an interpretation which some people might well make, uh, like the people that Bob Dylan talks about. Um, and the commandment to love thy neighbour as thyself, counteracts this partial perspective, both in a way which reflects the truth and as a practice which guides towards the truth even if you do not see it. This is because it is the one God who is the selfhood of our neighbour, just as he is our own selfhood. And because the God whom we are invited to love with all our heart, soul and mind is the one who is the God of all, and not just at the level of the private Lord. So the second commandment indicates the transcendence of the first beyond the private Lord at the level of totality and uniqueness. 
uh, and oneness, actually, I said. And the first indicates the point of unified vision without which it would not be possible to love thy neighbour as thyself. So in relation to Rorty's point of view, for example, I thought that on the one hand it's only through the vision of the first commandment that it is possible to love one's neighbour. And uh, similarly, or conversely, it's only through the second commandment that the trap of thinking that one's own religion is the only one is avoided. So it's the combination of these two commandments together which points to a unified vision at the level of collectivity, reality of Muhammad. In this way, curiously, it is the world and the appearance of difference within it which points towards a truly unified vision. Finally, just to draw out the radical implications of the commandment to love your neighbour, finally in this paragraph, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, love your neighbours, uh, love your neighbours, love your enemies, he says, and pray for your persecutors. Only so you can be, only so can you be the children of your heavenly Father who makes the sun rise on good and bad alike and sends the rain on the honest and the dishonest. Now we are invited to this unified vision. In the surah of Yusuf in the Quran is recorded the revelation to Muhammad. In quotes, And say, this is my way, I invite to God and to vision. I and those who follow me, and I am not of those who associate. In this passage, first of all, the invitation is to God, and only God, since it is made explicit that I am not of those who associate. Uh, Mushrik, i.e. those who associate other than God with him. So this is an invitation without association in it. It is not an invitation from other than God to him. Since there is only he, how could there be anything other than God from which to be invited? Nevertheless, this is a real invitation and requires a real response. And the nature of this response is pointed to in the reference to vision. It is an invitation to or through vision, a change in vision or perspective. And because the invitation is to God first, it is certain that the vision to which there is invitation is according to wholeness and totality at the level of oneness. How then is it that this vision is not an intermediary or a copy, in which case there would be association? Only if the vision is essentially the same as that of which it is a vision. And how can it be the same when the object of vision is the whole being? Only by a field of vision which is total and in such a way that being sees itself. According to Ibn Arabi, Fasus al-Hikam, in the chapter of Adam, this occurs 
both in the being of itself, by itself, and in the mirror of the perfect man. The first vision is an essential vision in which vision is the same as being. He says, there is no other vision than the absurdity of oneness. Even to express it in language is to limit something which cannot be described in words. The second vision in the mirror of the perfect man is the vision which is, the collective, which is collective of the infinite aspects of the being differentiated into all things which were implicit in the first vision. A situation which is likened to an unpolished mirror. And then further, when they are collected together in a single point of vision, likened to a polished mirror, which occurs in a human being, this is known as the perfect man. This is the vision at its most sublime degree, according to which we are invited to God. The unpolished mirror is the world, and in that it is no other than what was implicit and hidden in the being of itself, by itself, and brought into existence, the many are indeed unified. However, the appearance is of difference, and hence the unpolishedness. It neither appears completely disunified, which would be chaos, nor as unified, which would be oneness before manif manifestation. But in this world, the nature of which is relativity, the appearances of relative degrees of unity and relative degrees of lack of unity. This unified vision to which we're invited needs the discrimination of all the aspects before the vision according to reality of oneness in multiplicity and multiplicity in oneness. This is so, so that humans can be invited from an unpolished, disunified vision to a unified vision. As we previously saw in the discussion of the chapter of Hood in the Fususahikam, it is the situation of relative degrees of knowledge amongst humans which underlies uh, relative disunity and strife linked to such great suffering. But from the discussion of the two commandments to love God and neighbour, we could see that it is the very existence of difference at the level of our neighbour which points towards the unified vision to the one and all-inclusive being. So the invitation is to a shift of vision. This shift is both essential and relative. Essential in that this vision, in its completion, is an end in itself, uh, the end in itself. Master Dogen, uh, the 13th century Zen master, his description of the reality of meditation illustrates this in the language of Buddhism in the opening chapter of his great compendium of Zen knowledge, the Shobogenzo, the meaning of which, interestingly, is of right vision. Right Dharma Eye Treasury is what Shobogenzo means. Uh, open quotes. If a human being, even for a single moment, manifests the Buddha's posture 
in the three forms of conduct, that's body, speech, and mind, while that person sits up straight in samadhi, the entire world of dharma assumes the Buddha's posture and the whole of space becomes the state of realization. And he also says, echoing what Hood said to Ibn Arabi, all concrete things possess original practice as their original features. It is beyond comprehension. End quotes. And this shift is also relative in that even a glimpse of this vision in a particular time and context brings, according to the particular need, for example, meaning and guidance, relief in suffering and harmony where there was discord. The being of this vision and those who represent it is indeed a mercy to the world, both essentially and relatively. How then to respond to this vision, to this invitation, to this vision? How individually and how as a society and a world? If we are responding to an invitation, then we are doing so from a point of view of not seeing this unified vision and not seeing unification in the world. How do we come to a point of unified vision from here? I think the answer is simple. Although Naomi, my wife-to-be, said surely not. (laughs) 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 And I I debated it one way and the other. I think it's simple. It's a life's work as well, since everything changes. Even if we do not see this unified vision, we can conceive of it, conceive in the widest sense. And if we represent it to ourselves, we are putting ourselves in relation to it. Representing this to ourselves has an effect on our consciousness. All of our more limited perceptions and states, our ordinary vision, becomes related to this universal perspective and observed in the light of this. In the famous hadith of Gabriel, when Gabriel asks Muhammad, what is ihsan, right action? Muhammad replies, to worship God as though you see him. And even if you do not see him, surely he sees you. That which we heard wonderfully yesterday morning. One meaning of he sees you is that adopting this perspective of as if we see him instantly puts us in the position both of knowing we are seen and of observing ourselves as if from the point of view of him. This method of as if is a voluntary practice in vision and consciousness. And by practicing this, there is an immediate effect on our consciousness during the time we're aware in the particular situation we're in. There is also a longer term effect as diverse disunified aspects of ourselves 
thoughts, beliefs, emotions, habits of action, and so on, come into relationship with a collective vision. As this goes on, the circle of compassion widens and it becomes possible to a greater extent and more frequently to love God with all one's heart, soul and mind and to love one's neighbour as oneself according to the good tidings that God is the absurdity of all things. It is impossible not to quote here the famous hadith of the supererogatory works which tells us the ultimate end of this process. My servant continues to come nearer to me through these further acts of devotion until I love him. Then when I love him, I am his hearing with which he hears, his sight with which he sees, and his hand with which he holds, and his foot with which he walks. End of quote. Within society and the world, there is a directly analogous effect of representing this unified vision. Since the unified vision is a thing of consciousness, the representation of it within the consciousness of groups, societies and the world is in itself a manifestation of unified vision. Analogously to the individual case, as this mode of consciousness is represented and practiced, so apparently disunified aspects of the world are brought into essential relationship under the collective unified vision. From the unified point of vision, everything has its place because he holds it by the forelock. This vision is already there to be seen and it is also possible to be as if we saw it, even if we don't. By doing this, we submit ourselves collectively under this superordinate unified vision, observing plurality in unity and unity in plurality. And one result is to bring about a consciousness of our proper place and the place of others within it. Only in submission to the unified vision is it possible for us to address our differences non-violently. And uh, where we do address our differences non-violently, it's often in the contexts of some lesser or more limited unified vision, such as within a group or a tribe. This applies in ourselves and in our close relationships, but now in the modern era, it applies globally in the way it never has before. The issues we face are global, and the means of communication which there are, enable glo global consciousness of these issues and a global response. The unified vision is potentially good news to every individual and it is announced and invited to by the diverse voices of those who represent it in all corners of the earth and in all times. The voices which potentially meet with the very same meaning from within each individual. In reality, this is a meaning which is both universally, uh, universally present 
and pregnantly potential, arising according to its own timing. Thank you.